Welcome to Going Off Track. That was a very odd accent choice I was putting on there. That was almost what Transylvanian. Was I guess that would be Romanian now, which is where Transylvania is. Uh, here with Brad Worrell and Jonah Bear. Uh, Mike Canjemi, our fourth guy. He shows up on occasion, is uh, working for NBC right now, which is an awesome gig. Maybe we should um, get him on the podcast. We should, actually. Yeah, yeah, we get should him. book him. Talk. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Mike will be back in here. He, uh, I love the text Mike sends us. Dudes. Ah. Uh, Sorry, God, and it's and he always apologizes, but it's a gig, you know, it's work. So you, it's like oh, nobody feels bad, man. Yeah, it's like, dude, you have a house and a kid. And yeah, a wife. <laughs> you're fine. Yeah, wait, I have a house and a kid and a wife. I have um, I'm missing something. You now have an apartment. <laughs> I do have an apartment. Jonah Bear has been basically homeless <laughs> for the past year. My third move in 2012, and this one I think is going to stick for a while. Hopefully, yeah. You've now been. Uh, well, you we weren't officially evicted, but. You were evicted. I mean, I had to go to housing court and basically make a deal to be out by a certain date with my roommates. Although, we didn't have to pay our last month of rent because they tried to screw us over. So, the judge was totally on our side. The judge actually was really cool. Oh, that's cool. What's housing court like? Um, is it like night court? I like to think everything no, is. No, I thought it was going to be more like that. It's <laughs> You don't really get to hear other people's cases. You kind of privately meet with the judge right. and everything and the lawyers. So, it was just a lot of standing around. Um, in a very depressing room, but I kept making jokes. Um, <laughs> like this is really everyone's really serious. It's like everyone's getting evicted or going through stuff. And there was this hanging plant um, in the corner, and I was like, I was with my roommate, who's very similar to me, Nick, who took our photos, oh, which Nick's are amazing. Hilarious. And I was like, Hey, Nick, I think over there that's the plantiff. <laughs> and it was just, and us just <laughs> laughing, and everyone just like staring, like who are these two idiots? <laughs> so that was my experience. Make everything in life into a joke, a bad joke. <clears throat> but then, can you can you comfortably say where you ended up living after this? Yes, um, I ended up living with this guy Arturo Vega, who designed the Ramones logo. He's a He's he was, an artist. He was the fifth Ramon. Yeah. He was the fifth Ramon. He's been to every Ramon show except for two. He's been over was a, over two thousand Ramon shows. Did the lights for a long time, um, and yeah, I lived at his loft in East Village on Joe Ramon Place, and it was an amazing experience. And he's going to come on the podcast at some point. He oh, yeah. travels a lot because he has art shows all over the world. Wait, were you there because Lisa was on the road, or was she there? Yeah, Lisa was on the road, so I was subletting Lisa's room. Okay, mm-hmm. so I was there from. August, September, and October. Our friend Lisa, who is uh, on the new show Roadies. Oh, yes. About the Vans Warp Tour. She also will be on at some point. Yes. Um, but, yeah. So, um, yeah, it was a really cool experience. I've met Arturo, and it's great because he's one of those guys you can tell likes to talk about the stuff, but in a cool way. Not, like, boastful, but just, like, just like all right, DD 78. <laughs> so, yeah, and, yeah. So I was asking him stuff all the time, and I was like, is he going to be annoyed? But he totally was into it. No, it's because he's, a f- even though he was, you know, literally the fifth Ramon, he's still a fan. So that's why he's not boastful. He's like, yeah, we both share the same enthusiasm, you know? Yeah, no, totally. Also, yeah, I don't want to spill any, any secrets about Arturo, but uh, he was, I was like, this guy's going to want to listen to the Ramones 24 hours a day. <laughs> he listens to, like, Brian Eno, like he has this total like wide taste and everything, like loves the moody blues, That's like all the stuff. And I was like, no, I was I'm like, done. I, no, I, it was cool. Like I feel like he's very like no, moody blues are not cool. No, the moody blues are not cool. I agree with that. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Days of future past. I got I had a guy in college and in high school, and we were driving to our senior beach week, 
and you know college, stupid high school rules like whoever's driving pick the music and i was like days of future past really i'm gonna kill you whole record this is awful and i think he just kept going with it and laughing because i would not show i'm like this is garbage this is stupid Nights in white shit. I hate this band. Did you do a record release party? What? Oh, yeah. <laughs> I just throw it out the window. God, I should have. But I was actually more impressed that he was, it was the first car I'd ever been in and it had cruise control. So mm-hmm. he would turn on the cruise control and then put his feet on the dashboard while driving. I was like, this almost makes up for having to listen to this What's shitty record. What's the point of cruise control? You can't use it in the here. It's, you can't use it anywhere that we live. But I know, yeah, in the freeway, but it's like... In the freeway, it's great. Really? Yeah, yeah because you don't have to constantly... Yeah, I guess Put it this good. way, when I... I drove cross-country by myself one time in the, in the band van, and... For in the fun? southwest... No, I was... I moved to L.A. for a year, but... And so I drove the van full of shit. So you went down, was it the 70, and you went across the panhandle and back up the 5? Yeah. I, yeah. Took the, I took the middle southern route. Uh, yeah, where you were the least amount of time in Texas. Yeah, yep. exactly. I've, I've done that route. That'll bore the shit out of you. But, but so the south. When I got to the southwest, it I basically went through Arizona and uh, and uh, New Mexico with both feet out the window. <laughs> I'm not even kidding. <laughs> and like, I'm not an unsafe driver, but I realized like that I had enough reaction time to like anything that was going to happen on that road. That perfectly straight road where where the road. You know, if you've ever driven through the southwest, there's not even a shoulder. It just goes road, desert. Like, it's totally smooth. You could completely drive right off the road and just keep Road, going. dead armadillo, dead armadillo, dead armadillo. You could literally go to sleep and fucking wake up out in the desert miles from the road. So I had plenty of reaction time, and that is what cruise control is for. <laughs> Good. Well, if I'm ever in that situation, I am going to try that. Well, yeah, the Northeast, you can't use it. I constantly try. Like, I'm driving through New England in a rental car, and I put on the cruise control and it's it's actually dangerous here because like you either have to turn <laughs> it off dangerous there, <laughs> or you have to hit the brake to, to turn it off Sounds so like dangerous. i'll be driving with my kids with cruise control like i really don't want to hit the brakes it'll turn off the cruise control <laughs> veering around cars <laughs> <laughs> i don't want to break my momentum oh, no. that's amazing <laughs> oh man we talk a lot about touring with mr rob pope rob from pope. spoon and the Get Up Kids. Spoon and the Get Up Kids. It's going on track! This week's guest, Stephen Smith. That's right. <laughs> and our guest host, <laughs> Rob Pope. I, I've always wanted to guest host a podcast. Well, Here welcome. Are. Here Do you have are. any questions for Stephen? No, I'll, I'll, they'll come to me in a minute. I have a few. It's a great yeah. idea for a podcast, actually. Yeah. You're the guest, you will interview me. Yeah, that is good. <laughs> and not telling them ahead of time. Not telling them ahead of time. <laughs> it makes it way better. Do you have, do you yeah, have any th- questions? Thanks for that. For yeah, thanks no for problem. That. Yeah. All right, I have a question. Okay. Do you live around here? I do. Whereabouts? Uh, I've got an apartment in... And my girlfriend lives... Fantastic. So, you know, it took me a good five and Thank you for giving us a here. small, like, little blink that we have to edit out when you give Perfect. someone's location. Perfect. Those Perfect. are fun for Brad to edit. Great. <laughs> Brad, when it's when it's zero zero point zero five six to zero zero point zero five seven. How was the walk over? Lovely. Yeah. A little humid and moist. Yes. Because it's weird out there. Yeah, because the climate change is real and the world is slowly melting and That's everything true. they talked about in the seventies and eighties is now happening. Yes. And I've never had the experience of thinking, my children might not know what snow is. <laughs> and now well, they have it. 
Not unless you fly them far away from here. Yes, to the Arctic. Mm-hmm. I pronounce the C. Um, so you live here, live here in the Brooklyn, but you are not from here. No, I grew up in Kansas. Yes, of all places, mm. um, right outside of Kansas City. From the time that I was two years of age until I was twenty-seven. Zowie. Yeah. Wow. That's unfathomable to me. Now, I've driven through Kansas, and that's one of the places where I, you can— I apologize for that. Well, when you drive through Kansas, you can, like, lock your knees in the steering wheel and sleep mm-hmm. until Colorado. Yes. Yes. There's two hills. <laughs> so you gotta, you got to keep—you got to watch out for those ones. got to watch out for those ones. When uh, I went to Trevor's wedding, he was trying to get everyone to go to the outhouse. Oh, boy. Um, which is apparently a strip club in Lawrence, but we— could not make it happen. Yeah. Uh, it's the weirdest place in the world. It's an old punk club. Really? The outhouse was like legendary. I mean, Bad Brains, Minor Threat, everybody had played out there. Fugazi played a bunch of shows there. Um, Nirvana played their first show in Kansas there. Wow. Uh, wow. Then they closed it down and it was nothing for a while because they had trouble with the law. And then it reopened as a bring your own beer strip club. Full nudity. You can walk in there with anything in the world. And pay 10 bucks and have the weirdest night of your life. So you could walk in there with just a, a, a dolly, you know. <laughs> you could bring your own keg. Of, of you know, could you bring hard liquor? <laughs> yeah. Oh, my God. Absolutely. That's so dangerous. Right? <laughs> they, because it's full nudity, they cannot serve alcohol. Right. Because right. you can't. But somehow, through a loophole, you can bring all your own in. Oh. If Los Angeles is in the middle of a cornfield, like there's nothing else around there, it is one of the strangest places on earth. Wow. Yeah. No, I you, suggest we all go. Let's go immediately. <laughs> yeah. Let's board a train. I hope there's a liquor. I hope there's a liquor store next door. I hope there someone, isn't. There isn't. Is there a gun store? <laughs> Very close. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah is it? Very is it I, having only driven through Kansas? I mean, is it? Is it the? I, whenever someone says. Well, middle America, this is what they want. I mean, is that is Kansas middle America? I would say so, absolutely. I mean, I mean geographically, kind of yes. But I mean, <laughs> Midwestern state. Okay. I mean, um, Lawrence is just, that's one of those towns that every punk band plays at. It's just so awesome. Do you play there? Yeah, a bunch of times. Right Where'd on. you play? The Bottleneck. The Bottleneck. And what's the other little spot? Isn't there a. Replay Lounge? Yeah, Replay. Maybe? Yeah. Replay. Dude, that Replay is one of those. That place One is of great. those places that you have your greatest, literally like, you, when I played there, this is probably like 95, you would walk in the front door and the band would be right in front of you, like back against the bar. Mm-hmm. No, was there this, was probably no was stage in 95. This, yeah, no stage on the floor. Yeah. And like, They've everybody's just crowded up against you. You're forced in against the bar and just awesome. I love shit yeah, like sweaty, that. Sweaty, <laughs> crap, you know, crammed shows. Yeah, I saw some good ones there. For sure. Any faves? Um, well, a lot of massive bands played there long before they were very big. I saw Modest Mouse play there, and there were like three three people in the room or something. <laughs> and I literally, I was like, this is the worst band I've ever seen. <laughs> <laughs> Four months later, I was like, this is the best band I've ever heard. <laughs> but they, they really were a horrible live. Um, I, saw, I saw the White Stripes play there, like on their first U.S. tour or something. The Killers, which was hilarious. Oh, the wow. Killers showed up and played there, and there was no one there. And a band I was playing, and we were playing across the street, and I was like, I'm just going to run over to the replay. Walked in, and I'm like, who are these guys? Like, where? what planet am I on? And then three months later, they're like the biggest band in the world. That always killed me because 
They're called the Killers, and I'm like, no, no one. Yeah, I know. Right? No one had that. <laughs> I know. I, 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 I Ever? <laughs> I That's the same a really thing. good point. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I was like, good for them. <laughs> yeah. Wow. They got the one last thing going name, for them. the last one syllable name that you can get. Is a yeah. And you know how they got it? This is the next great part of the story. There was a, I think, the last New Order record. New Order put out a video and smartly said, we're not going to be in it because we're a thousand collectively. So we'll have a fake band playing our song. The name of that band was The Killers, and when it was, it was on the kick drum. And Brendan Flowers was a huge New Order fan. He remembered that from the video and was like, we should call our band that. And they literally did like a copyright search wow. and, and said the same thing I did. Really? Nobody? No, no one has <laughs> that hilarious. yet. Boom! Ours! Yeah. Shabam! You saw the killers there. That's great. Now, how did you get started? Did you were you one of those bass players that began on another instrument and then switched to bass because no one else could yeah, play it? Yeah, of course. <laughs> yeah, I mean, isn't that the age old story? Uh, yeah, I got a guitar, of course. And then three months later, it was like every everybody had a guitar, and I was like, I'm going to play bass instead because no one wanted to. And then I just fell in love with it. And then, and then your brother was he? Did he start out on drums as well? Yeah, he always played drums. Wow. Always. He's a kick-ass drummer. He's one of my favorites. I love he is. Him play. Yeah. And he's open-handed, he... too, which is great. Well, he's a little ambidextrous little... He does a lot of weird stuff. So you and your brother became, and I've said this before, the punk flyer. Wanted, bass player and drummer. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Luckily, we never answered any of those ads. <laughs> So you started playing bass, and was, I mean, was it? Did you study music at all? Was it a high school kind of thing? Uh, or I, I took some piano lessons as a kid. Smart. Um, my brother, he was always in in band class and doing percussion and that sort of stuff. Carrying his drumsticks in his back pocket. Yeah, always hated those guys. Always. Um, I never, I never really took any lessons. Never. I kind of just figured it out by learning other songs, and that was it. Wow. Yeah, I can read. I can read music, sort of, and that sort of stuff. And I've figured a lot of more music, more music theory stuff out in the recent past. But before, I was just like, "Sounds right," you know. Sounds like I'm playing in the right, the right part in the right song. <laughs> but how long were you playing when the Ghetto Kids started? Because you guys were really young. Yeah, when that band started when I was 17. Okay. Um, and I had been playing bass at that point for maybe two and a half years or something. And we were we were such naive little kids. I mean, we really we didn't know what we were doing. We didn't know the names of the chords, how they worked together, why they worked together. I, you know, we were just like kind of figuring it out as we went along. So Woodson was is actually the first song you ever wrote. I remember, I think in the live CD, Woodson. that's what it says. Yeah, what was that like? Because that song to me is still so incredible. I can't picture just being a teenager like this is pretty good. All, yeah, my, we were, all my bands when I was that age were so bad. <laughs> like I can't imagine listening to it yeah, now. Yeah, but we didn't we didn't realize that it was any good until other people started telling us that, you know. Um But yeah, I guess I, I it's weird cuz I don't ever go back. I haven't heard that song in a year since I played it for the last time or something. Um which last time? Well, we did some Get Up Kid shows last year. Mm-hmm. But it's been about that long. And I don't know when we're going to do anymore or if we're going to do any- I don't really know what's going on. It's kind of a good way to be. Yeah. You know? We we still talk to each other every now and again, but uh, there's no no pressure to... We're not trying to be a band anymore. We're trying to be <laughs> friends and have a good time every now and again. So, Is that what led up to the, the initial, hey, I think we're going to... 
you done for a bit? Uh, no, that was like we exhausted ourselves and fucking hated each other. Right. Um, yeah, which happens when you're in a van with the same group of people for 10 years in a row. Oh, you mean band stuff? Band stuff. Yeah, <laughs> got it. Yeah, you've heard about this stuff. Yeah. You guys you guys talk to band people occasionally? Yeah. <laughs> My favorite, I think, comment ever was uh, when Norman Brandon was in here and someone said, what happened in Texas is the reason. And he went, lead singers. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and the other guy went, okay. And it, that was it. That was the end of the conversation. Yeah. It was like Lead's everything singers. was understood. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Now, I learned about the Get Up Kids because I've always found, and one of, my, one of the few facets of my interest in music that I actually enjoy about myself is there'd be a band that's gigantic that has a number of fans, and I'll have never heard a song, don't know anything <laughs> about them. And someone will say, oh, you know this band? I'm like, No. Well, they're huge. Then I look up. Indeed, they are huge. They have a great following. They play a lot of shows. And the Get Up Kids was one of them. You were late in the game. I was so late. I'm, dude, I'm beyond late in the game. When I was in high school, it was like, Van Halen is the greatest band ever. What are you guys doing tonight? Going to see Love and Rockets and the Pixies. Poof, whatever. You know, I'm going to go watch Thundercats. Um, you're 18. Yeah. It's awesome. Uh, true stories all. Um, and then I was working at Fuse. Yeah. And that's when, you know, everyone was telling me about the Get Up Kids and, and uh, how inspired they were. And we met our all-mutual friend, Mike Dubin. Yeah, um, we had a good support group over there at Fuse. Great support group for yeah. the Get Up Kids. Um, having been in a number of those meetings where they choose and decide what videos to go on, there was there was a good push. Um, but they were very specific about what videos they played. Yeah, and, and unfortunately, we never made a good video. The one where you... Sp- <laughs> The one video where the camera spins around the that whole time. Horrible, right? <laughs> Only horrible if one you get vertigo, or have yeah. motion sickness issues, or epileptic. And I'm the middle one, so I could never watch it. The funny thing about that video is that they, um, the people that made it, and I, it's kind of blurry, but um, they <laughs> completely fucked up, and they filmed it at the wrong frame per second. So, which is why it feels really weird. Because they were supposed to be filming it, I don't know, some larger number of frames per second, and they forgot. And so thousands and thousands of dollars later, it was like, oh, well, here we go. We got this instead. Well, you, you guys came on, and I was interviewing you. And, of course, whenever you know mutual people, always makes the interview more relaxed, and you guys were great. I brought up the fact that, you know, hey, I learned a lot about you guys from this book by Andy Greenwald, Nothing Feels Good. Mm -hmm. And you quickly went, yeah, it was great to be included in a book where no one called us (laughs) or interviewed us. And there's a chapter devoted to our band. There's a whole chapter? I never read the book. Well, yeah, apparently he didn't talk to you much. I was very confused. And then that changed my whole perspective on the book. I read some interview the other day, like someone was interviewing um, Bob from Braid. And it was like... Who is it for? I can't remember. Some place that I write for, too, so I probably shouldn't be talking shit about it. But <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to anyways. And it was like, interview, like, talk to Braid about, like, the three-little word emo. And I was like, you're interviewing Bob in 2012 about emo? Like, yeah. how can you, like, I, 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 like, if they told, I would be like, no. Like, I yeah. can't. Like, that conversation to me was so old and annoying, like, ten years ago, that I can't believe that people still are like, what is this? Like, especially to guys like that. There was an interview on 120 Minutes when it was still happening with Dave Holmes, who I love. I think he's an amazing host, a uh, very funny guy, knows his stuff. And I don't know if he came up with it. It looked kind of like, you know, the writer saying ass, but mm-hmm. he was interviewing The Promise Ring. And this was on the very emergency record. I, re- said, I remember this. Remember this interview? Because we were on with Dave Holmes like two weeks later. Okay. Yeah. 
he he remember what he asked you when I'm gonna bring it up. Emo. Tell wh- tell me what emo is. Oh. Yeah. And I remember the whole just this collective just uh, <laughs> <fall into> a... <laughs> Yeah. It was I don't know. We always felt like it was like if they're gonna ask us that, the joke's on them. Yeah. You yeah. Know? We don't have to we don't really need to answer that, do we? It I, I never understood it. Yeah. Uh, growing up in Northern Virginia and you know, listening to Embrace and Rites of Spring. Ten years after the fact, because I'm not cool, <laughs> um, but like that's what it was to me, you know. Yeah, sure. And even then, there's footage of Ian MacKay on YouTube, you know, in '85, going emo. What the fuck is that? <laughs> yeah, stupid. Life goes on. <laughs> I mean, yeah, especially as a sound. Like, I feel like as a community, it's one thing. Like, because I would go to like see you guys at like Detroit Fest, yeah, or stuff like that, yeah. or like. And I felt like there, I was talking, when Jason and George from Hot Water on, I was like, do you guys miss, like, playing those kind of shows in, like, DFW-type places where kids are, like, playing kickball outside or, mm-hmm. like, Forest Square? And it There's was very... some sort of vegan barbecue happening exactly. around the corner. <laughs> like, I feel like that kind of yeah. stuff doesn't happen. Like, everything's, like, a big, large-scale thing. Like, I feel like, like, band, like, I feel like all those bands either got bigger or disappeared. Yeah, but I also don't think that there's the same era. Like, I mean, when... The first three tours that I did, we only played in houses. Like, we didn't play clubs or venues or anything like that. And I don't know if that exists anymore, like like it did in the late 90s. Yeah, I don't think it does. Um, I want to hope that it does, and we're now, like, older guys going, exactly. does this yeah, happen? That's yeah, true, right? uh, that's, that's what I hope yeah. is happening. But I, you know, I don't ever see anything to, to validate that. Um, but I hope it is. Yeah. Cause yeah, I mean, I mean, I those are like the fondest memories I have of touring in a weird way. There's certainly wouldn't want to do it again, right. being a 34 year old man. But yeah, at the time it was amazing. Um, but yeah, I don't know. I don't know if that's happening. I don't either. I mean, we saw a house show with Blake from Jawbreaker's new band. Yes, uh-huh. and I saw a house show with Against Me like seven or eight years ago, and those are the last two I've been to in a decade. So I don't know if those bands, if they're yeah, if there's a smaller bands like and they're like getting signed to No Idea or something. But how many records did you guys put out? The Get Up Kids. Yeah. How many did we put out? Five. Five. Okay. Yeah. I always I read an interview about the making of Four Minute Mile where it talked about you guys made it in like a couple days or something. Two and a half days. Awesome. That is crazy to me. We. Um, my little brother skipped school. We, I remember we pulled the van up and picked him up and he came running out the back of the, of the school. And then we drove to Chicago and recorded with Bob Weston. We were supposed to do it at, at uh, Steve Albini's house, but they were right in the middle of moving studios out of his house into the new place that they have, Electrical Audio. So we wound up doing it at Chicago Recording Company, which was much more expensive than recording in a house. So we could only afford two and a half days. <laughs> so, uh, so it was. It's basically a live record, and when I hear it, I think it sounds like that. <laughs> you know? There's a lot of interesting tunings and out of key vocals and what, whatever. Um, I don't know. People love that. Record, people love still. it. Yeah. I do, you think, do you think that makes it better for for some people? Absolutely. There's I I love hearing a young band that sounds like a young band instead of like a young band that gets in the hands of a producer that's trying to run everything through Pro Tools and fix everything. Yeah. You know, there's it's something much more charming about even as far back as the first Beatles recordings. It's like those they're so raw and just weird sounding because mm-hmm. 
that they're just live records. Yeah, it's like the best musician of the whole band was Pete Best. Yeah. (laughs) He was the best one, but then he's like, I'm not going to wear that. Yeah, it's kind of like it should be your, that should be the test, your first record should always be. Absolutely. I mean, imagine if the early Buzzcocks singles were really slick. Yeah. (laughs) You know, like, ah, no thanks. It's it's the honesty test. But I, you know, I played on that record and I have to live with that too. (laughs) So I just don't ever listen to it. But I, I, I understand that people enjoy it. And now you're in what I would still say is one of the tightest bands that plays Spoon. Yeah. I mean, ridiculously. Like, I mean, I think well, I Well, those I, recordings are a little more labored over. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> we don't, you spend a week we, on this? We, get a, <laughs> we spend two and a half days getting a snare drum sound, you know? Really? Not really, but it <laughs> feels like it sometimes. How, how long have you been in Spoon now? Um, seven years. Yeah, a while. Yeah. And but the, so which record did you start on? Ga 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 ga. Okay. Yeah. I joined up with them right when they got done with the touring cycle for Gimme Fiction. Mm-hmm. And then started recording with them for that record. Right. Why not? How did you hook up with Spoon and Brit? Um, um they'd been looking for a ton of bass player. They'd been looking for a bass player for a while. Had tried out a bunch of people. Um a friend of mine, Kevin Kasatsu, who you probably know. Yes. He's the guy who married Trevor. Yes. Um he was working with Juan Carrera, who was managing Spoon at the time, threw my name in the hat. He, Kevin called me one day and was just like, hey, Spoon's looking for a bass player. And I was like, great, sure, throw my name in the hat. And then it wor- just worked out that I wound up being at South by Southwest with this other band that I was playing in that no one really heard of for a while called White Whale. Um, nope. Yeah. Sorry. That Don't worry about it. Did you tour, did you tour they have at all? No. <laughs> Pequod. Uh-huh. <laughs> I can keep going. I read the book. <laughs> you did. Good for you. And Billy Budd. What's up, Melville fans? Represent. <laughs> Are you done? Yep. <laughs> okay, great. Um, but yeah, I wound up being at South by Southwest for that. And then uh, had breakfast with Britt. And we talked about life, music, things of that nature. And then I wound up rehearsing with them a month later in my basement in Lawrence, Kansas. And then two months later, I was in Austin recording music. So, yeah, that's how that happened. Do you find that maybe the meeting wasn't so much? Like, like when you get to a certain point as a musician, it's not, and, you, and you're auditioning for a band or meeting someone in a band, it's not, we, we assume you can play. It's are you cool enough to hang? I, I think a lot of it is that. I mean, you don't want to, I don't want to play in a band with some, hot shit guitar player just because he's a hot shit guitar player. I want him to be a cool guy and a great guitar player. Like that's that's a lot easier to deal with in the long run than just some some studio musician kind of person. So with being in the get up kids and you said, you know, you did it to death and touring and touring and then was there a, a long was there a break between them and Spoon? Uh it was about a year and a half, two years. Yeah. Were you just like itching to tour or just trying to find the next Not really. Project? I was I was playing in that other band, uh, the Melville band. Right on. And um, we did a little bit of touring and put out a record on Merge. And then that ended pretty much as soon as I joined Spoon. So I did that in the interim period. And then I was I was also working at this screen printing shop that I own and doing, but kind of staying involved in the music scene in, in one capacity. But, you know, it was kind of a weird... It was a weird moment when the band that you've been playing in since you were 17 is no longer doing anything. 
Yeah, I can only imagine. Yeah. Knowing, knowing, <laughs> knowing a number of people, a number of people who flew to that last show. Yeah, yeah. When you play a last show with a band that has that devoted a following to the point where, you know, people are flying in from other countries to see mm-hmm. it, how the hell do you put together a set list? <laughs> uh, I have no idea. <laughs> <laughs> I don't, I really don't. I remember certain parts of that show, but I don't remember it very well collectively. Like, is it like how we got together to figure out what we were going to play? I think we'd, we'd been playing shows leading up to mm-hmm. it. So, you know, I know that the set list was quite a bit longer, but yeah, it was, it was a weird, weird thing. It's like, kind of having an out-of-body experience not really being not being able to really realize what's happening but i imagine it's also like a weird feeling to get back together when you guys made the last record and yeah. sort of start playing again after kind of being apart for so long yeah it was kind of it was kind of weird though because i saw like there was certainly a we- weird feeling but then i saw basically the same thing that happened in 10 years happen again really quickly in three years <laughs> like <laughs> like we're just like you know it's it was just like right when we got back at it it was like oh yeah all these same issues are all still here yeah. and we get along and we're all basically like brothers and it's fine but it you know that the idea of like trying to devote a huge large chunk of our lives to that again is just not not very good for us I find it fascinating when people use the term brothers because that means like you know closeness closeness and, and tightness and stuff but i have relatives in my family that you know i grew up with that i loathe mm-hmm. and the only reason we have anything in common is there's a dna strand next to us you know it's like my yeah. friends are much cooler and i would rather hang out with them more but i guess to start that young and to literally literally grow and mature mm-hmm. as a band as you are as a person that's got a way on you yeah and i mean that some of those guys have i mean my brother i've known since the day he was born uh, one of the guitar players, he and I were in first grade together. You know, I mean, it's like, it's kind of bizarre. Yeah. So it's just like people that I've known my entire life and somehow we wound up in this band together that toured all over the world. Yeah, people don't forget, people forget the Beatles broke up. Like even the Beatles were like, you know what? Fuck it. Yeah. <laughs> Fuck it. Yeah. We wrote the best songs ever, but eh, I don't yeah. want to do this. Um, I'm we out. All of them in eight years. Yeah. Yeah. Like, yeah. Jesus. We're 29 <laughs> and we're the Beatles. See ya. It's hard. It's Can we hard talk to be about in a for band. a second how Paul, Paul McCartney is starting to look like a woman. <laughs> yes. Have you seen any pictures of him recently? <laughs> and I love Paul McCartney, but he's got to stop dyeing that hair. Yeah, it's, yeah. there's got to be a point where you age. A friend of mine yeah. said he can't he can't wait until the day Paul Simon goes, "Ah, fuck it," and just stops wearing the toupee. Yeah. Just yeah. wipes it off. Paul Paul Simon? Paul Simon, yeah. You think he wears a toupee? According to my friend who knows everyone, yes. <laughs> I'm pretty sure. I don't know, but you know, next time we see it, we should grab it. Let's go see Paul now. Where is he? He's probably he's in New York. I'd love to go see Paul Simon. I would too. I you know what I don't it. love when people call me Garfunkel. Ooh, I bet that's like okay. happened a few times, and like it's always like in like a real like weird aggressive kind of way. Do you ever feel like turn around going anti-Semite? <laughs> <laughs> No. Anti-Garfine. I try not to to play that card. I would play that card every second I I had. I know you would. I doubt that at all. I'd love to be Jewish. I'd hurl up so much. If I was Jewish, damn it. Racist. Just to be able to say that once in my life as a white dude. Damn it. 
Uh, it's never going to happen. As, I mean, as a bass player, people, I think, um, underrate McCartney a lot. They don't realize how amazing he is. Yeah, certainly. He's he's one of the best of it's, all time. It's obnoxious how good he is. Yeah. On bass. But good bass was, players have any... Good, good bass players are underrated in, in any band they're in. Mm-hmm. I think... And then you get somebody like Flea, who's who is talented at what he does, but I wouldn't call him a great bass player. He's like... It depends on what sort of taste you have. Yeah. yeah but, but he's the one that gets the limelight. Totally. Where the, yeah. There's these, like, you know, unknown geniuses who like are fucking, holding bands together, literally. Yeah. Like fucking Tony Levin or um, uh, Pino Palladino, who's, like, the man, yeah. you know? Pino Palladino was the guy that The Who called the day after John Ent Wilson oh, died really? and said, can you finish <laughs> the tour? And he, like, flew in yeah. and they toured. I don't think they rehearsed. These are yeah, Who songs. They were playing shows like two me? weeks after he yeah, died. Yeah. Like they, I was like, they were doing something and then he died. And then like I saw them on TV. I was like, well, they're playing already? Yeah. I totally I, didn't I would need like three or four days to learn my generation. He, like, yeah, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like literally they called him up and he's like, all right, I'll, I'll, I'll move some things around. Yeah. Unbelievable. Uh, much respect to John. Yeah, <laughs> Rob, were you ever into like like I was played bass growing up, and I was really into like Flea and like Les Claypool and like I never all that. got into you never that got stuff. into that like kind of nerdy like never technical. because I mean I I came at it from a very like punk rock sort of way okay. where it was just like pure energy and just reckless abandon holding no, a pick no real like yeah like playing everything with a pick and sort of like which goes against bass playing from the get go but. That's that's how I got involved. Was much more like punk rock. And then through the years, you know, I figured out, you know, how to make it sound a different way and playing other styles of music and that sort of stuff. But yeah, I I could not get into Flea. Yeah, no, I mean, it yeah. wasn't real ever really something that was helpful as a musician <laughs> unless you were at Guitar Center trying out a bass. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. He, he's a trumpet player who learned to play bass and he plays bass like a trumpet. Like that's the whole point. <laughs> Literally. I, I mean there's He was so a many, trumpet player. So many notes on there. You got to yeah. use all of them. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You got to use all of them. <laughs> that I've never understood. Yeah. Um so when so I love that starting from the from the punk rock standpoint. And now what gets me is you're in Spoon, like again, very musical. I mean, ridiculously musical, act. but like kind of anti-punk rock at the same time yeah. in a very minimal sort of weird way. I mean, now it's now I've like gotten completely turned around from you know just trying to punish the instrument that I'm playing to like just trying to remember when to lay back a little bit and and not play notes where I don't need to play notes and. And um, thinking thinking about it completely different than I did as a fifteen year old. Well, Spoon is like minimal to the. It's precise minimalism. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like, like, like that's exactly what you just said. It's perfect. Um, like, we're only going to play the notes needed. Yeah, I mean, there's a song on the last record where I play two notes in the entire song. Cool. <laughs> that's your favorite one to play live. It, it's it's a good one actually. I mean, it's it, but it gets into this kind of weird repetitive loop that is kind of hypnotic in a way. And for me, that's kind of that's just as challenging as like trying to beat someone over the head with like all this melody and harmonies and all a whole bunch of other stuff. Whereas if you fuck that one of those two notes oh, up, it's yeah, real noticeable. I know. I know. <laughs> <laughs> has that happened? No. Okay. I'm gonna <laughs> <pull up>. Like. <laughs> 
That's no. awesome. It's like the guy in the, in the orchestra that has to just do this the, crash. The symbol crash of the, <laughs> the one triangle. Yeah. You have dating. one job. <laughs> one thing to do. <laughs> and you were on your You went iPhone. to Juilliard? <laughs> <laughs> Fuck you. Go to the back. Oh, you're already there. You're already in the back. <laughs> Um, when you were starting out in high school playing bass, you said it was punk rock. Like, who are your bands? Bands I was into at that point, um, a lot of the touch-and-go bands, Slint and Jesus Lizard. And then I was starting to get into, geez, I don't know, Unwound, Drive Like Jehu, um, Rock from the Crypt, that, going. that kind of stuff. A lot of the, like, Gravity Records stuff, Heroin and Born Against. and yes. Oh, you mean that band? That's, from the crypt? Yeah, that one right there. <laughs> yeah. Um, a lot a lot of that kind of stuff at the time. Because when I was a kid, I, my older brother got me into rap music, basically. I was, my favorite band was Public Enemy. And then I heard Nirvana. And then I was like, that's a little more interesting right now. And I still love Public Enemy. But yeah, I then, I got, then I got into rock and roll music and punk music. And through, through you know, early 90s. That was what. That's what was happening. That right then is the greatest statement I've heard, and it's the that that, that that's the definition of a generation gap right there in a great way. I got into rap first mm-hmm. as a white kid living in Kansas. Yeah, big time. <laughs> and then I, mean, I, I heard had, Nirvana. Like, I had NWA tapes that were like mislabeled, so my parents wouldn't take them away from me. And awesome. Yeah, but then yeah, I heard Nirvana, and um, and I wasn't really necessarily into any other grunge bands mm-hmm. i didn't have any alice in chains tapes but um yeah from nirvana somehow it just went straight into fugazi and and jesus lizard and stuff like that yeah that's a that's a great gateway <laughs> yeah yeah i'm very happy it happened that way are you a big joe lally fan from fugazi as a bass absolutely player? i have a great story about him so uh last year last november spoon was playing in austin um playing a festival and Joe Lally was playing earlier in the day. And I don't know, have you guys heard this Wugazi project? Yes. Which is yes. Wu Tang mashed up with Fugazi. So Joe Lally's playing early in the day, like two in the afternoon at this festival. I'm standing on the stage watching him because I love Fugazi. Later, I'm in catering, sitting next to Joe Lally, having, having a meal. And I don't even realize I'm sitting next to him. I wind up looking over, start talking to him, tell me I had a great show. Pleasure to meet him. And then right as I'm saying that to him, Wugazi starts playing in the tent right next to us. And we, I look at him, and he gives me this look that's kind of like, this is a weird moment, isn't it? <laughs> and he's like, I got to get up. I got to go see this. So he got up to go watch the first, first Wugazi performance, which is really odd. And I'm glad that I was sitting right next to him when that happened. That's amazing. Yeah. Yeah, I, growing up in Northern Virginia, that was just required listening. Oh, you had to absolutely. go to shows. I've hung out in parks waiting for Fugazi to show up, not realizing that they were up the street where my friends were. <laughs> Some friends. <laughs> yeah, well, I now now I think that no one is going to have that experience of standing around waiting for a band to play, not realizing they're at a different venue yeah. because of these magic phones that I carry around with <laughs> yeah, me. I still I did that like three weeks ago. I went to like <laughs> a show at like Lit or something, and I got to the door and gave the guy the money. He's like, "Who are you here to see?" I was like, "This band." He's like, "Yeah, that's like they're not playing. They were playing at Mercury. I went to the wrong club. I got, <laughs> I got my money back." But speaking of touch and go, like I have been. Uh, 
sort of like getting back into like a lot of like silkworm and bedhead. Yeah, yeah. And yeah. I listen to it all the time, and it's weird. Like I'll post stuff on Facebook, like, "Hey guys, like here's this cool bedhead song." Like, yeah. And like I'll get like no one, like no one cares. <laughs> and I feel like a lot of the stuff I care about, no one cares. But those bands to me are so good. Still, like it's so weird to me. Yeah, that, like, like some of those seam records. Yeah, like, totally. Un- unbelievable. Uh, yeah, no one cares. Obviously, because yes. the label folded and right. And it's a catalog label at this point. Yeah, mm-hmm. but do you ever wonder, like, I always wonder, like, in, like, 20 years or something, like, is someone going to, like, some of these obscure indie bands, like, are going to become cool again with kids? Like, I don't know. Like, I wonder how this stuff's going to be perceived in the future. Like, I wonder. It's or is so, it going to be just totally off everyone's radar? You know what kills me is that that one of the, and this is connected to your point, is that, you know, the most popular records are the Now That's What I Call Music Records, which uh-huh. is basically a mixtape from the radio, right? It beats out everybody. And we've talked to Norman Brandon about this, that you know, the first time I heard about Texas and the Reason was Now Core. Do you remember this record? No. It was on, it was on, it was <laughs> KTEL Presents put this record out. And it was Promise Ring. I got it. We, I, they should sponsor us. I've talked about this record so many times. <laughs> it was Promise Ring, Dismemberment Plan, At the Drive-In, Modest Mouse, Drive Like Jehu, Jawbox. It was it was ridiculous, and it was like this. So it was put together like that. Now that's exactly whatever those in are the eighties. What year was this? I think we looked it up. I think I can't remember. Ninety six. I want to say yeah, probably probably ninety six. Sounds like that era, you know, <laughs> to me. Um, <laughs> when fuck when did I see Jehu? No, cause, no, it had to be before that because I saw Jehu in ninety four. Nice. Had to be around then. Um, two years that makes a difference, doesn't yeah. it? Back then, <laughs> um, but like that was like that was. There needs to be a record like that. You know, a, a, from that time period that you can go and, and you know, that's your place to mm-hmm. touch and go from, as you can right. say. You know what I mean? Like that, like you need a, like that wellspring. And I think with the internet a nowadays. A sampler of underground 90s music. Well, yeah. <laughs> I mean, there's that Discord box set. I mean, there's stuff, I guess. Yeah. Rhino used to do good stuff yeah. like that. Yeah, absolutely. But they don't, do they still do that? I don't know. Like they, I mean, they did all that. They did like, they were doing all those like Nuggets variations when I was at AP. All those Nuggets I, ones and that, that punk one is really great. Yeah, the punk one's awesome. And there's another one that's really, yeah, the No the no Thanks one, I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, that one's awesome. And there was another one that was great. And like the British Nuggets were awesome. But I don't really know if they still do that stuff anymore. No, they they must, mess. I mean, it's probably hard for them like selling like boutique CDs. I know the Rhino Handmade stuff does okay, mm-hmm. but they do like all the crazy vinyl and really collector stuff. They should put together like a playlist website. Yeah, they, they should sell anything. They should have like, an iTunes. Like, <laughs> yeah. yeah, I mean, no, they seriously. might. They might have something like that. This is how you should put it together, and then like here, go find it yourself because you're going to anyway. Yeah. When you see that the CD is listed, you know, <laughs> you're gonna look on Amazon. You're gonna look at all the tracks, and then go find them before you decide to buy it. Yeah. Not that I've ever done that. <laughs> Many never. No. Um, I remember when I worked at Fuse and I stopped like downloading music because I had this weird thought of someone's going to find me. So they're going to find me. <laughs> and they're going to mortgage my car. Huh. Is that happening still? Are people getting um, getting prosecuted for stealing music? I think people just more yell at them. <laughs> so, someone I was talking to the other day was like, said they could get like in trouble at school for doing it. Like they were like, someone almost got expelled because they, or, or no, no, that's not it. Someone was saying that the cable company, if you try to download a movie illegally, they'll notify your cable company. And if you do it a certain amount of times, they'll, like, 
cut off your cable. I've heard of that happening. Is that really? Yeah. That can happen? Yeah. I've heard of that happening and also with an internet provider. Yeah. Yeah. Because you are not your own internet provider, you are renting their service to do so. But then that... The, but why the, would the internet company, wouldn't they want your business? Like, yeah, but they're getting pressured and it's not a. It's not enough people that... They're getting pressured for, by, from Hollywood, you know? They're, yeah. It's a powerful... Uh, what is, it? what is it? Lobby group? Yeah, but what's the name of it? It's the initials. Hey, right. I know what you're talking about. I can't. or something like that. Is that totally wrong? Well, they must have some... <laughs> it's the FBI that's getting them. It's the FBI. The CIA. <laughs> the, NES, the DEA. NSA. It's the Coast Guard. They're fucking yeah. pissed. It is the Coast Guard. This is going on on our coast? <laughs> <laughs> Damn it. But what's interesting is what happens in this country is then that's privacy laws. Well, how are you staring at what I'm downloading? Well, you're using our server. Yeah, but... You're not supposed to be able well, to do that, which is the reason. Yeah, welcome to Double Jeopardy. Yeah. That's Double Jeopardy. <laughs> Boom. But if that, but the other flip side of that coin, and this is where the podcast takes off. Oh boy, here we go. Um, <laughs> this would make Nielsen ratings obsolete because every cable company and internet provider knows what you're watching, so they know what shows are really popular. Mm-hmm. So they don't have to do this obscure rating system involving a Nielsen box, which sits in a household. And doesn't handle how many TVs there are in the household. It measures what you watch when you rate it. Because every cable company can tell you why we're all watching NCIS and how this shit works. Um, because that's an invasion of privacy. Hmm. I know people that won't get a DVR because they're like, I don't want people keeping track. And I'm like, well, see, here's why you're an imbecile. Because <laughs> yeah. they're already keeping track. And also, like, you're, you're assuming people, like, you're that important. Yeah. Like, who cares if you watch, like... Pawn stars for nine hours a night. Like, you know what I mean? Like, what is someone? We know do you are. Like, yeah. Like, yeah, I'm saying it now. Right. If, if there's a marathon, I will watch it. It's like sort of educational, but uh, yeah, who cares? Like, because those slobs behind the I, counter know the history of what they're doing. I believe in privacy laws, but I also believe like in some stuff. Like, it's like, what's gonna happen? I don't know. Like. They're going to figure out how to market to you. Yeah, I guess that's, that's true. I did read this crazy article about Target, how they can market to pregnant women before they even have re- announced that they're pregnant. What? I read like, that article. It, it's it's fucked up. How it's does like, Target know when people are pregnant? Based on like, what they're buying the first couple months of their pregnancy, they'll oh, start marketing vitamins. Them. Yeah, like all kinds of stuff, but they can't... Cause once you get a pregnant woman, I guess that's like the jackpot because they're they want to buy everything in one place. Yeah. So they'll send them coupons for stuff like... They'll buy a lot of yogurt, like like three weeks in or something, and they'll see yogurt. that, <laughs> and you know, use your card every time you check out, like, like rewards card. So yeah. they'll see that, and they'll analyze the data. And they got it's just in New Yorker. There was this crazy story where they sent. They can't be too blatant because they don't even want the women to know that they know they're yeah. pregnant. But there's but, some guy in a visor in a room, and he's like, "Got one." Exactly. <laughs> but before, when they were being too blatant, they figured this out. They sent all these pregnancy coupons to like a 16 year old girl, oh, and her dad boy. came and was like, "Why are you sending all these diapers, all stuff to my daughter? Like a special oh, dress to my no. daughter?" And then he came back three weeks later and apologized. He's like, "My daughter's pregnant." Oh my oh god! My. I read that article. Dude. Unbelievable. Yeah, dude. It's like all a logarithm. Yeah. So I take back what I totally just said. Right. <laughs> I didn't watch any Pawn Stars. I have no idea what you're talking about. <laughs> they already know. That's why oh, you're yeah. getting the mailers you're getting. Yeah. I love that with logarithms. There's, there, there, there's, a, a, I don't know where I read this, but my super genius brother-in-law who's got a PhD in building molecules out of molecules, whatever. That's what he does. I said, I heard this. Please tell me it's true. And he said, yes, it's true. There's a bunch of mathematicians 
working on the logarithm of how your headphones get tangled in your pocket. Oh, oh wow. No way. And he went, yeah. And I was like, what? He well, what are, full what ride they? to Villanova. This is how this guy, this is how smart he is. Yeah. Also, he's Puerto Rican and his English is still broken, which kills me. Because he can sit there and build molecules and stuff. And then yeah. he doesn't know that verbs need to be in a past tense. And I love it. I <laughs> love it. That's... I'm with this. Yes, yeah, aren't you? I Don't love, you back this? Dude, yeah. I've, that's what my exactly billion dollar idea. Like, I've been trying to solve that for like, yeah. I've I've literally been trying to solve this. I don't understand like what like how can an equation though like aid you yeah. down the road and in, in all that time saving <laughs> that I that I spend untangling. Can you imagine yeah. if you knew this logarithm? Oh god! And you could take your headphones and not put them in the case and put them in your pocket and then pull them out later and they are not. Mm-hmm. Wound up in a giant knot that you don't understand. And you in front of your friends, we would all be like, you are inhuman. Yeah. <laughs> Forget about quantum physics, finding out how the universe started or how black holes work. I feel like this would affect my life so much more. Yes. <laughs> that stuff is interesting, but. One of my favorite Jonah moments ever. When you go into his house or apartment or wherever you happen to be staying this week, uh, he'll say, at some point, I'm going to freak out about where my headphones are and you just need to let me get through it. <laughs> I have like a weird thing. Yeah, like I'll be like sitting watching TV relaxing with where are my headphones. And then I'll have to like go through my room, find them and like I won't even listen to them. I just need to know where they are yeah. all the time. Do you have that? Do you ever have that with like in-ears? Or, like, yes. Here, here's, here's when I have it because I have those those in-ear monitor things. Right. Oh. And I use those as headphones a lot of times. And, and they're really expensive. They're so goddamn expensive. Yeah. And I've lost them so many times and luckily I've found them. But every now and again, I will have a panic attack. Yeah, and be like, "What? What bag are those in? Where am I?" And I gotta, I gotta find them right then. What was the transition like of playing? I'm assuming playing for years, not having in ears, to doing it because I find this fascinating. Um, it's a little, it's a little bit of a transition, but it's sort of like you know, it's like recording in a studio when you have a mix of everything you want to listen to with headphones on. Um, it's that that basic technology instead of a. You know, your open ears and amps and monitors in front of you. I can't remember who told me. I think I want to say Matt Rabano. He said the whoever, if it's not Matt, I apologize. But whoever said this to me was a bass player mm-hmm. and informed me the first time they had in-ears on, they went out on stage, they started playing, and they fell down. <laughs> because they didn't they turned around to do something and the sound didn't change and they said they just fell over yeah, like their equilibrium a, just took they, their it ears it takes a little getting used to it's so strange because you know you can you can have a monitor engineer like pan pan stuff wherever mm-hmm. you want it and so you know the keyboard player that's over there i could pan him all the way into my right ear and then you know so when i look over to him and the sound's coming from over here it's it gets a little confusing I wonder if monitor guys love it or hate it. They love it. They're fucking with us constantly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, oh yeah, I'll put the guitar here. Screw you. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Wow, that's amazing. That's. I mean, is that is, is Olive Spoon? Everybody's in here. Everybody but Britt. Oh, he can't do it. He's not into it. Huh? And and every I've gone back and forth with him too. Like I'll use him for a while, mainly because I'm worried about losing my hearing. Yeah. Because uh, they are, it's much easier to control than giant standing in front of giant amps. Yeah. You know, I at least have a volume knob on it. Yes. Um, but yeah, I, I don't know. I, I love them and hate them because mm-hmm. there's something to be said about just walking out onto a stage and like plugging in and going for it, and not having to not having that other element to worry about. Not wearing something that's hanging as well. Yeah, yeah. yeah. 
You guys you use uh, like wireless when you play as well, or uh, for the in ears? Yeah. Okay, got it. Yeah. You know what I wanted to talk about is our friend Tony is playing in a band now with the singer for Ultimate Fake Book. Oh yeah, who, Bill. Bill, yes, yeah, um, in L.A. and. I saw them open for the Get Up Kids so many times. Like mm-hmm. I felt like you guys took them out a lot. I mean, and other bands too. Like I mean, did you like? Do you like the idea of kind of taking out bands that you like? Because it seemed like I'm sure you could have gone on bigger tours, kind of towards the end of that era. But I felt like you were always kind of bringing out your friends in a way. Um, we were always, you know, strong Kansans. We liked that regionalism, which I think has kind of gone away in music a little bit. Definitely. Um, but we always wanted to, you know. Wherever the band was at in popularity, we always tried to bring bring out a local band with us um, on tour because a lot of those bands never had the opportunity to tour, but we loved them because they were either our friends or we liked their music or whatever. But we, that was always the kind of the idea. It was like every single time we go on tour, let's bring that band that's from Topeka or that band that's from Kansas City or s- someone from related to that area. But that's that was how Ultimate Facebook happened. You sound like just from this conversation that you know, if you're playing a show, you would go out and watch all the bands. Yeah, I used to do that a lot more than I do now. Yeah, well, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. which goes goes back to that hearing loss thing too. I'm, I'm yeah. with you. When I realized I had tinnitus, I was like, "Ah, oh, that sucks." Yeah. Yeah, you know? oh, that's going to be horrible for the rest of my life. <laughs> yeah, that's another reason not to move to the suburbs because it's so quiet. Yeah. When my wife and I first moved out, we were sitting there, it was so quiet. I was like, what is that ringing? And she went, I hear it too. And I went, oh, God. <laughs> it's happening. Why did we do that? <laughs> so you're young and you're an idiot. You don't think standing in front of the bass drum is a bad thing. Yeah. Um, But uh, hearing loss, God. I hated that when I did the sensory deprivation tank the one time in my life. That was the first so thing I noticed. Mm-hmm. You're lying here having this serene moment. It's, you know, expensive meditating, basically. And all I keep hearing is just this high pitched ring. Oh, and all I'm thinking about is, why didn't I listen to anybody? Yeah. Yeah. It's <laughs> a dumb punk kid. You were over listening. <laughs> yeah. Because you have to be that close and you bands have to be that loud. <laughs> yep. Don't you? Always. My friend Rob interviewed Dimebag Daryl. And uh, this was like probably 10 years ago, maybe longer. And uh, he said he like blasts music when he sleeps because his tinnitus was so bad. He was like, it's just like, like he was like, that's what it sounds like. He's like, I can't sleep with like, it's crazy. It would be horrible. So imagine, I mean, even if for you, like it could be, imagine it's like you couldn't even hear me. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) And you've Robbie a heart attack. (laughs) You're so concerned about it. I know. I imagine when you hit the point when you're like, this is, you know, you're a musician. Yeah, I don't I don't want to stop doing this. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, you kind of have to It sucks that I have to make grown-up decisions. <laughs> right? <laughs> yeah. And like treat this like something that's not just like the best hobby in the world. How often does Spoon tour? It seems like they're one of those uh I don't want to say sporadic, but like a career band like we know when we're going to tour, we know when we're going to chill out. I mean, we you know, when we'll put we'll put out a record and tour quite a bit for like the entire following year. Um, but we don't go on like big, crazy, like seven, eight week long tours. We'll try to, we'll try to split it up two to three weeks here with a little bit of time off. Um, just so it doesn't become so repetitive and weird and, and, you know, mind numbing. Uh, but yeah, we haven't, I mean, we've only played a handful of shows this year. We only played one show last year. At some point, we're going to start working on another record. But Britt just put out a record with Dan from Wolf Parade. Oh, wow. Um, that just came out 
a week ago. So he's playing some shows supporting that record. So yeah, I don't know what I don't know when we're gonna get get back out on the road. What do you what do you do when you're not kind of playing the band when you're just in Brooklyn? Do you just hang out? Or? Yeah, this summer. Well, this is the first year of my entire life where I haven't played 200 shows, you know, or something like that. So um, it's been amazing, like, <laughs> like civilian life. It's it's great. Uh, I've been hanging out. I was in Montauk all summer long, and like I've. I grew up in Kansas, and then I got to spend two months at the beach, which is amazing because I've never done that in my entire life. So um, and then I'll be working on some music through the rest of the year, and um, I might be opening up a bar. And There's no a, bu- there's a bunch awesome. of stuff in the works. You mentioned screen printing earlier. Do you still have that? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Is that like just posters or you do shirts and stuff? Shirts, posters, everything. Well, where the hell were you when we were putting our <laughs> what do you stuff need? together? What do you need done? We'll Let's talk do about it. Okay, great. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, He's got a recording studio, too. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What? Yeah. Well, you know, as we are in Rubber Tracks in Williamsburg, Brooklyn. <laughs> yes. What do you think? I like this place. Yeah. Yeah. Wait a minute. Black Lodge, right? Yeah. Oh, okay. You know it. Yeah. Twin Peaks. Fan. It's not too far away from the outhouse. Ah. <laughs> yeah. Right down the road, actually. Oh, was that planned? No, it really wasn't. But <laughs> you're not the first person to ask that. Is Black Lodge... Uh, God, that's my entire life as an interviewer. You're not the first person. I know it. <laughs> <laughs> that's fine. Uh, is it... Uh, <laughs> um, uh, is, that a, is that a collective? Is that a lot of you guys? Yeah, there's three of us. Okay. Uh, my brother. Mm-hmm. And then Ed Rose, who recorded a bunch of the Get Up Kid stuff over the years. But Black Lodge, it existed with Ed before you guys were involved? Before, yeah. Okay. And then... So what happened was it was called Red House. And oh, then right. basically um, the Get Up Kids came in. We purchased the studio with Ed. And then through the years, like some of those guys didn't really want to be involved in it. So we bought them out. And then now it's just down to Ryan and Ed and I. And actually we're trying to sell it. <laughs> <laughs> so if anyone wants to buy it. Yeah. How's it? Make you a hell of a deal. You guys don't still do the Heroes and Villains imprint? No, that <laughs> that went away too. Yeah. That was cool. That was a great one. Yeah. Yeah. Who did you guys say? It was like the anniversary. The anniversary and Hot Rod Circuit and Kofax and Reggie and the Full Effect. Not bad. All those groups. It was a good, it was a good time. Yes. Fun, yeah. Now, when you record with, with Spoon or with the Get Up Kids or having your own recording studio, mm-hmm. um, I mean, are you like a big knob twiddler? That sounded wrong. <laughs> I t- I'll twiddle some knobs. Yeah. I do a lot more... Um, the last Get Up Kids record that we did, I was much more involved in that. With with Spoon, it's tricky because it's everybody's elbowing each other over the console most oh, really? of the time. Because Jim, the drummer, is a producer. Britt has been producing records, and everybody's everybody knows what they're doing in that group. You know, we've all been doing it long enough that um, it, a lot of times there's too many cooks in the kitchen. So it's, <laughs> it's best to just have a seat at the back of the control room. You know, because if there's an engineer in there, an assistant engineer, and then three band members at the front of the room, gets a little, gets a little crowded. Do you like producing? Um, yeah, you know, I haven't really done. I haven't really done a whole lot besides the projects I've been involved in. Um, but it's, I love being in a studio. Mm-hmm. It's the, it's for me, it's a lot of the most rewarding parts of being in a band. Wow. This guy from the bass on the waiting room. It did have a, a bit did of a before. Fugazi yeah. moment. Yeah. You want to walk in and just help him out? 
That would be so amazing. Hi. Hey, let me see that thing real for a quick. Yeah. Just give me a second. I'll give it right back. <laughs> now get the fuck out. Um. Uh. When wait, he had an imprint. Did you produce any of the bands on the imprint? No, just, no, you no, just no, no. It was through Vagrant. No. Oh, okay. Yeah, it was through Vagrant. Of and when we signed with Vagrant, that was part of our deal. We were like, we want to be able to basically sign a bunch of bands that we were friends with. Merch was like, sure. Also. <laughs> he was saying sure to us a lot back then. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, so that's that's how that happened. And I wasn't producing any of the bands on the label, but I was I you know, I basically like took the anniversary to Chicago when they were recording their first record and was around for that, but uh uh basically just hanging out with him more or less how far away is lawrence from chicago takes about eight nine hours to drive there oh see my geography is i'm like what is it like three hours away it sounds like the way you grew up that you there were bands coming through like you said brad it was a fun place to play so if there's a fun place to play that just opens up a lot of opportunities for one fans to have fun and for bands to spring up so i'm surprised that more didn't or maybe just a bunch of bands you never heard of. I mean, that's like what we were talking about earlier. Yeah, yeah totally. it's just like there there were quite a few, but I mean, a lot of it at the time because it was before internet age, it was just like it was very regional, and it was like, oh yeah, the Denver bands or there's three Denver bands playing here tonight, you know, and and that's how people toured at that point in the Midwest, and that's when there was, you know, a lot of talk about it, like a Midwest rock scene or midwest emo scene when the chicago bands would come down and play and uh yeah i don't i don't know there were there were tons of bands around then but maybe it was just because i was also going to shows every single night well probably being a college town too a lot of them left you know right yeah yeah a lot of bands would stick it out while they were all in college then they'd either break up or move somewhere else so I think that regional thing still existed. Like, I feel like since I've moved here, it's like people will be like, oh, my God, Glassjaw is playing. Like, everyone will be freaking out. I'm like, okay. Yeah. <laughs> like, I feel like there's so many bands like that where I'm like, I don't think I was far enough East Coast to really, like, listen yeah. to stuff. And Whatever region you grew, whatever region you grew up in, you got stuck. And, like, being in Cleveland where you're, you know, with, you know, a giant meteor's throw of Chicago and even Milwaukee, there's that. It's like, it's your scene, you know. And I grew yeah. up in Northern Virginia, so we were ensconced in those bands. And then, you know, I moved to New York and people talk about these bands that were gigantic. And they were here. They were mm-hmm. amazingly. But then with, I just feel like with the internet, like everything, I don't feel that there's ever been another Seattle. I just feel it's just little pockets everywhere that kind of explode. Yeah. I don't know if that could exist in, you know, this modern world we live in. Mm. I don't know if it needs to, though, like if everyone's kind of connected, you know. Yeah. Like, what does it matter? I mean, like. It, see, a lot geography of that, isn't as important. A lot of that was hyped by the labels and the press, too. Mm-hmm. I mean, yeah, Seattle, yeah, but it probably isn't that different than other towns that they didn't that didn't get focused on, you know? Absolutely. I mean, a lot of – I remember at the time of the Seattle thing going on, they were talking about Lawrence, Kansas being the next Seattle because there were like yeah. three really horrible grunge bands that were from there. <laughs> horrible. And what were those? I – can't name names. Um, <laughs> let's see. I think one was called like one was called Stick. Maybe Kill Whitey. They, those might have been the same. same. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. There, there were some pretty bad ones. Yeah. Stick. 
Yeah. That wow. sounds really familiar to me. They were on a major label. I mean, they got, they were like a bunch of these bands that got signed to major labels right around that time because the major labels were signing everything yeah. at that time. I hung out with uh, Lisa Brownlee last night, and she's on tour with Disturbed right now. And uh, someone was making her a drink, and I asked if the shaker was made from new metal. <laughs> <laughs> she was like, shut up. up. <laughs> Just a bad joke that didn't work last night. I wanted to repeat on the podcast. Um, well, you know, a joke is only as funny as how many times you... Exactly. Repeat. Yeah. They should uh, repeat them constantly. I mean, forgive me. Get Up Kids go through the major label? Helio as well? Um, we almost signed to a lot of them. Yeah. But we never did. Um, maybe, thank God, I don't know. Maybe I, maybe I would have a mansion in Kansas if we had. Um but uh but yeah, the we, dinners were delicious. The dinners it. were great. The <laughs> dinners were great. Yeah. Uh yeah, we never we never did it. Um we had a, we talked to a ton of people after our first record. Mm-hmm. Um and which was that was on Doghouse at the time? Uh-huh. Okay. The first record was on Doghouse, and then we met with every single major label under the sun basically. And no one was it just None of it really felt right. They were like, oh, you basically need to re-record that first record. And we were like, well, hold on a second. We already recorded that record. We and spent we already... almost three days on it. Yeah, we spent almost three <laughs> days. It's fine. Are you kidding? Um, yeah, there was a lot of that, a lot of giving up creative control and, and, and rights to stuff that we we weren't comfortable with at the time. And then when Vagrant kind of came along, is what happened is Rich, um, Rich Egan approaches about managing us. Mm-hmm. And so he was managing us through a lot of this, the major label waters and talking to all these people. And then um, at some point we were just like, fuck it. We need to record. We're ready. We have all the songs and we need to find a label to put it out on. And so we just wound up putting it out on his label. And that's how that happened. That's not a bad label to be on. I remember meeting him in Fuse in the basement. And he just said, without knowing me and, and the obvious boner this would cause, he said, "Yeah, I just started a label because I just I really love bands like Rocket from the Crypt and Jawbreaker." Mm-hmm. And I said, "And I, I said this to him. I said, do you want to like make out now, or like you want to wait till <laughs> after the show, or how do you want to do this?'" Yeah, and that's the thing. He walked away. I can't remember. I've seen so many something to write home about tattoos. Oh God! In recent yeah. year, which I like, I never, ever thought I would see. Yeah, there's a lot of those floating yeah. around. Yeah, it's someone needs to. Get, Someone needs to document all those. It's amazing when people are such fans of your band and that you see, you know, tattoos and spa, uh, involved with something like Matt Devine, who was on the podcast from Kill Hannah. He tried. He has them, people email them him mm-hmm. as much as he can. Yeah, and he had this great line uh, spoken here in this room that I think he said, "You know, I don't see a lot of Katy Perry tattoos. I might not have as much money, but there's a lot of Kill Hannah tattoos." Yeah, yeah. It's a good point. Do you have any Katy Perry tattoos? I can't show you. <laughs> Rob Pope, bass player extraordinaire. I, I like it when musicians that one are cool, but you know, if a band ends, they go on to do something else. And he got into a, a very successful band afterwards. Spoon. There. Have you ever seen Spoon live? I've not. I would. I would love. To you seen them? I don't think I have. Uh, it's one of those, you know, you listen to a band and they, they end the song and then they do that little da-da and then stop and then hit it again. Yeah. Spoon just stops on a dime. 
every song. And really? it's impressive. It's really, really great. I saw Spoon at, um, with Rob at uh, Webster Hall. And uh, one of my dearest friends, Benji Faree, was opening. And he was on uh, Doghouse, Dogtown, Lords of Dogtown, Z. And he was on his record label, and so he got to open for Spoon. And uh, it was packed and mob. It was just a great, great venue for him to be in. And uh, so that cool moment of, oh, my friend's opening. Oh, and I like the band he's opening for? <laughs> yeah, how often does that happen? This is great. can hang out. Because usually you're just like, can we just go to the green room and sit for a while? Yeah. Is there booze here? <laughs> This is awful. <laughs> I think it. Oh, were you gonna say no? Oh. <laughs> um, I think it's cool with Rob too to list. You can hear his whole kind of musical trajectory. Like we talk about that Woodson. Uh, that was the first song they wrote. The first song that Woodson Seven Inch, and it, the sound quality is terrible, but it's awesome. And for him to go to that and still be doing music full time and kind of yeah, he's a, he's a he's a musician flat out. You know? I mean, all those get yeah. all those Get Up Kids records though. Every record, I mean regardless of what your favorite songs are, those guys improved so much as musicians over the course of that band because they were so young when they started it. I had one Get Up Kids record that someone gave me, and I think it was... Four Minute Miles. Something no, it's, it's, a co- it's a covers record. Oh, yeah, yeah. Eudora? Eudora. That was yeah. like B-sides and stuff, but it had some covers yeah, on yeah. it, too. They had that Clash cover. They did Alec Eiffel. Yeah. Uh, Pixies tune. That was the one Get Up Kids record I had. Really? And uh, you ever have that moment where you listen to a band and you hear a song and you don't know it's a cover and you just think the song is awesome? Oh, yeah. Then you find out later. Sure. I was in a band in college and they covered probably one of the greatest songs ever written, Bastards of Young. And I was like, man, this song rules. These guys are really, (laughs) really good. Wow. Cut to watching the greatest video ever made. Yeah. Bastards of Young. Funny, I was just somebody just asked me last week what my favorite video was and I told them about the Bastards of Young video. And cool. also they've guys, never seen it. I'm in a documentary called Bastards of Young. Yes, it's hey. true. About the emo movement. Uh talking about Thursday or something. What else do I talk about? But uh <laughs> yeah. Um so check that out. I've gotten recognized for it about Four times in the last 10 years. That's really good. <laughs> I remember when that came out, and I was annoyed. I'm like, oh, they took that? Damn, there goes my screenplay. <laughs> Crap. Were the Get Up, Get Up Kids featured in it? I'm trying to remember. I remember, like, it was Thursday, like, the starting line. Like, I don't know if the Get Up Kids were in it. I can't remember. I haven't seen it in a really long like, time. It's on Netflix. I should just check it out. I feel like the emo thing is done. Is it? Can we be comfortable with that? I think think there's still interest around those bands like i feel like braid and the, i think those bands but as far as like new bands yeah. I, I feel like it's kind of like bled into like a different scene sort right. of i i think it exists in a different context i'm cool with never hearing that word again I'm, i think it's I'm i was reading it. this article recently where it's like some guy talks to bob nana about emo it's like Dude, you're going to really... Like, this was like... People were annoyed, and this was old news 10 years ago. You're serious, like, what do you think emo me? Like, it's... Come on. <laughs> like, it, it drives me nuts, because it's like... I, I understand, like, people are younger, and they're just coming into this, but it's like... It's the dumbest debate. It's like this thing that doesn't exist. And no, it's like, just these labels, it's like, people just need to move past it. Yeah, but you're also a music journalist and know how to ask a good question, so you're also probably reacting yeah, to poor no, that's journalism. True. That's true. Know? And it was... Yeah. Because, you know, when you first start out, it's always, I would always tell people, if you have to ask who their influences are, you haven't listened to the record enough. And this dude, the guy doing the interview, his name was Jonah. And there aren't that many music journalists named Jonah. So I was like, I hope no one thinks this is Are you is trying me. to confess something? <laughs> it's okay, man. 
No, I would never ask Batman. <laughs> There's a lot more interesting things I would talk to that dude about. Good, let's get him on the podcast. We will. Next week. Okay, maybe not. It won't be next week. Yeah!